Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so thankful that we cannot fit you in a box, that you are too big for that, and that we cannot limit you to just one characteristic. Lord, I thank you for being our shepherd, our counselor, our guide, our redeemer, our sustainer, and so much more. Lord, help us to catch a new glimpse of you this morning, that we will be attracted to you and found faithful in worshiping you and loving you and following after you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. It's a good morning. You know, I don't know about you, but high school was a really tough year for me. Just kidding. It was a tough four years. It was one of the toughest times in my life. Uh, It was, uh, I think... Of all the times in my life, high school was the time when I was the most tired in life. I mean, you wake up at 6 a.m., stumble to the breakfast table, barely get some food in, then go to school eight hours a day, try to stay awake when you're in school, try to listen, try to avoid peer pressure, teen anxiety, then write down your homework assignments, get home, uh, make sure you put your stuff in the place where it's supposed to be, then go to work and then work for a few hours, then come back home tired after work, try to get your homework done before dinner, and then you, do your, then you eat your dinner with your family, and then you try to study some more, and then you try to stay awake as much as you can, and then finally you just fall asleep, wake up the next morning, 6 a.m., repeat the whole process. And it was just one of the most exhausting times in my life. I also remember uh, being assigned to read this book that totally did not make sense to me at all. Some of you may be uh, some English studs. You may just love reading and you lo- love literature. That's not me. I usually read about a couple of pages and then I have to like, what did I just read? And I have to reread that and catch back up on it. Well, we were assigned to read some classic literature. Uh, it was written in the 1300s mid-English um, by the author Geoffrey Chaucer. Has everyone, anyone heard of Canterbury Tales? The book made absolutely no sense to me. I was reading it, and I thought it was a foreign language. I mean, it just had no impact on my life whatsoever. I, sorry to say that for all of you literature scholars out there. But for me, it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing. Now, my English teacher had assigned us this project well in advance, uh, many weeks in advance. And I would come home, and I would try. I would read a couple of pages and uh, then I'd just stop reading. Uh, and then I would, day after day, week after week, I would just kind of put it off doing it until one day at school, the teacher announces to the class, students, don't forget, your assignment for Canterbury da- Tales is due tomorrow. And you could imagine the horror that came over me at that moment. And I was terrified. You know, I'm not the best reader in the bunch to begin with, but for me to catch up all this reading that I've missed in one day, I was finished. I was done. I don't know how it happened or how it came about, but later that night, I came home and it came up to my mom what what kind of a predicament I was in. And I don't know if I managed the courage to tell her or, or what, but she found out about it and I was expecting to get the look. You know, that look that only moms can give that strikes fear in the heart of every child. I was expecting not only to get the look, but also the talk. You know that as well, too. Well, I didn't get the look or the talk that day. Instead, I got something totally different that I'll never forget. 
totally blew my mind away. I expected my mom to say, go to your room right now and start reading. And don't come out till you're finished. But instead, this is what happened. Blew me away. My mom took the book, opened it up, and sat me down and, and started reading it aloud to me. And we finished the whole book. Or should I say she finished the whole book while I sat there laying on the couch while she read the book to me. And we finished it that night. Well, she finished it. I just listened. I expected to get the look and the talk and the punishment which I deserved, but I did not get it. Instead, I got her grace. And that is something I'll never forget. That totally uh, changed my life. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is grace. Now, I just told you a story um, about a mother's grace to her child. And for those of you that are mothers, you know it's kind of easy to give grace to your children because you love them and you want what's best for them. And you're a little bit, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Somebody help me out. Soft? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're favor, you favor your children. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about uh, a holy, righteous God and the grace that he extended to a very evil, lost person. And that's what we're going to talk about. So first of all, I just want to define grace in simple, easy-to-understand terms. Grace, simply defined, is getting something good that you don't deserve. I also think about it this way. Like, if, uh, like say you got pulled over on, on Main Street out in Fuquay for speeding right there across from the, uh, the uh, high school which has happened to me before, honestly. And that's, we won't get into that. But anyway, so imagine you get pulled over by the police officer. You are obviously speeding, but instead, uh, he doesn't give you a ticket. And he says, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. Well, that's mercy. He's not giving you what you deserve. But instead, he gives you a $100 gift card to Speedway across the street to use for gas. Now, that would be grace. That would be getting something good that you don't deserve. So we're going to be talking about grace today. Um, now, I want you to picture this um, story, a historical account of what really happened um, back in the early days of the Christian movement. Now, there was this man named Stephen who was a follower of Christ, and he was a disciple, and he had heard the gospel of Jesus, and he was eager to tell people about it. In fact, he went into the temples, into the cities, and he started telling people about it. Now, this story picks up, I'm going to read, where uh, immediately after he had just presented the gospel to a bunch of Jewish uh, people. And here's, here's what happens. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and the witnesses and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at, a feet, at the feet of a young man named Saul. Did y'all catch the word pictures there in that account? They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear what he was saying. They yelled at him. They ground their teeth at him. They rushed in and grabbed him, took him out, and stoned him, which was ultimately lead to his demise. This was a horrifying scene. 
This was a horrific mob uh, taking place here. Um, It was violent. And as this scene was going on, the mob laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul as he watched on this scene happening. Now, this would turn out to be a defining moment for Saul. This would change the trajectory of his life, uh, what he witnessed here at this time. How do you think Saul responded to this? Well, let's look and see what happens next in the story. And Saul approved of this execution. And Saul approved of this execution, this horrifying, violent mob, and Saul is in favor of it. This is truly the mark of a cold heart, or better yet, a dead soul. When you think about what Paul was doing, um, there was no remorse, there was no sorrow, there was no displeasure. He simply approved of it. Uh, at this moment in, in history, Saul's life was violently set against Christianity. Listen to what happens next in Saul's life. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Did y'all catch what Paul was doing here or what Saul was doing? He was ravaging the church. He was invading homes. He was dragging men and women forcefully to prison. He was creating havoc in the Christian community. He wanted Christians murdered and executed. And he even sought legal orders to make Christianity illegal. In short, Paul wanted all Christians to simply disappear. He wanted this cause to be ended. He was totally against it. Anyone who was a friend of Jesus was an enemy of Saul. And here's where we find our point in Saul's life where something changes. Because how do you think the heavenly father, the holy God who uh, uh, is in favor of Jesus and in favor of Christianity, of course, how do you think he responded to this man who was violently opposed to it? Well, many of you know how this story continues. You have to read Acts chapter 9 to figure out. In fact, you'll have to read a whole lot more in the New Testament because this Saul, the Apostle Paul, is brought up a lot. In fact, he wrote more than half of the books of the New Testament because something happened that changed his life. You remember his experience in the Damascus Road when he had an encounter with God where God showed him his grace. Um, And now, now this word, encounter with God, it might not be the word that Paul would probably use for himself for this uh, uh, time in history, he would probably say it was an apprehension or almost as if he was arrested by God and more like it was God just taking him, taking a hold of him. And, and have you ever heard the phrase or used it yourself with your children? I'm going to jerk a knot in you. Have you all ever heard that? Um, In a way, God is taking hold of Saul and really shaking him up and helping him see the error of his ways and showing mercy, but then also bestowing grace upon him. There is this point in, his, in Saul's life where God gave Saul wisdom. He opened his eyes to understand the gospel, gave him the ability to speak it out and carry it out across the uh, many, many different places where he traveled to. So we have this Saul who was this evil 
person now become, who was against Christianity, was violently against it, now has become the forerunner for Christianity, all because of God's grace. I want you to listen to how Paul talks about this to his friend. He describes God's grace to him when he's talking about it uh, in Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15, and Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? Faith and love are the agents that are coming about, the fruit that's coming forth through God's grace. The saying is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in to save the worlds of whom I am the foremost. This is what, this is what grace does. Paul was rescued by God's grace and Paul embraced it fully. Paul was given a fresh start in life. And Paul's actions throughout the Bible, throughout history, we see that he was fully dependent upon God's grace and grateful for God's grace. It, was, it just oozed out of him with his language as he was talking and writing letters and everything. This is what uh, grace did for Paul's life. However, I'm worried that some of us today are not appropriately handling this grace, God's grace. Um, I'm afraid that some of us may have tasted the gospel, but have never really fully uh, consumed it or embraced what it really means. We've only just admired it from afar. I'm afraid that some of us may have had even a supernatural experience in our life, and you, you even tell people about this experience where you really are sure that God did a miracle in your life but then you, something in about you is seeking for more evidence or more, uh, more answers or you need more from God to, to prove that he is real and that he really does love you. And then I think some of us may have been on a spiritual high at some point in our life where we just really felt God's glory and we really, really felt how awesome he was and how great he is and how loving he is to us. But then a little bit long down the road, we started going back to life the way it was before we had that encounter with God. In short, I think there's three ways that we misuse God's grace. I fear that some people understand that God's grace is a gift, but they don't understand what to do with it once they've got it. One, we reject it. Uh, now, to reject grace is to reject the offer of salvation. And for those who reject God's grace, forewarning, uh, be prepared to deal with other, whatever consequences, either temporal or eternal, that come apart from God's grace. Secondly, we neglect God's grace. Um, we neglect God's grace when we don't apply it in our lives or to others. Um, and this is one way that uh, we simply think, well, grace is something we've been given but we don't do something with it. And then last of all, we abuse God's grace. Um, we abuse God's grace in, in the times when which we say, um, hold on, I'm trying to get this cord. Y'all are probably like, fix that microphone. <laughs> Maybe it's just me thinking that. But anyway, 
when we abuse God's grace is when we, uh, we, we're like, we get that great gift and we say, thank you, this is so great, so wonderful, but that's it. It doesn't mark a, a changed life. It's like if the police officer were to give me a $100 gift card to the, uh, to the gas tank and I, and I would say, oh, great, now I can speed even faster and longer because I've got you know, more fuel to do it with. That would be abusing God's grace. So first of all, let's talk about rejecting God's grace. Um, I think one of the biggest reasons why people reject God's grace, if I could just sum it up in one word, it would be pride. I think pride is the big umbrella which causes people to reject God's grace. I mean, think about it. This definition of grace does not fit with the worldview that most people have in the world. We want what's fair. We want what's just. We want to people to get what they deserve. Um, so this idea of grace does not really add up. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we're, uh, it doesn't fit in most people's worldview. I think a lot of people think, um, I think a lot of people think that most people are good. Um, and if you think that, well, everybody's good deep down inside, then you don't really need grace. Well, I'm here to tell you, we're not really good deep down inside. Um, some people think that it's, they reject God's grace because they think they deserve it anyway. But if it was something you deserved, then it wouldn't be grace at all, would it? So pride is the biggest motivator uh, for atheism, I think. Uh, we reject God's grace when we don't accept it, uh, simply put. That's just an easy way of saying it. But if you look at Psalm 10:4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Um, and then also in Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, pride is the biggest reason why people reject God's grace. But the Bible teaches that we are all sinners in need of grace. Um, but you don't need the Bible to tell you that. I mean, just look at your own track record and you'll see that you are a sinner in need of grace. Um, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.2, he said, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. I'd say that people like this are in need of grace. And when I look at this list, I see where I fit in. When I am rejecting God's grace, I see where I fit in with that list. Um, we all can relate to that. We are all in need of grace. We are all need a miracle. The truth is, you and I are not good deep down inside. If you look deep down inside me, you will not find a lot of good. You will find uh, laziness. You will find anger, bitterness, apathy sometimes. I don't know how it is with you, but this is just me. I know what's deep down inside of me. Now, some of us can put up a front uh, for a while, and we can uh, act like we got it all under control, and we got it together, but we know what lies behind that mask, and we know what's really true inside of us. Um, you know, uh, we are in a miracle. We need a miracle to reunite us with God, and that miracle is Jesus Christ. If you think that you need anything else besides Jesus Christ to reconnect you and with the Father, then you are rejecting the sufficiency of grace. 
Somewhere in your upbringing, you may have been told something like this. Well, don't ask anybody for anything. If you want something, you got to go out there and get it yourself. You can't depend on anybody to do it for you. Well, that is good advice for a lot of different areas in your life. But it is not good advice in the area of salvation. For salvation, you must remember and believe that it's a free gift. Believe it. Receive it, and your life will change and never be the same forever. Uh, Do you live your life as if you have accepted God's grace? No matter if you're a Christian, a seeker, or a totally against Christianity, wherever you are right now, do you live your life as if you have accepted God's grace? Um, Do you believe that when you die, you are trusting that God's grace will get you into heaven? Through Jesus Christ, because anything else just isn't good enough. Pride is the problem. Christ is the miracle. Pride says, I can do it myself. Humility comes when we, when we recognize we cannot do it ourselves and that we need help. We need to be humble. We need to ask for help. We need to come to Jesus. James 4, 6 through 8 and 10 says, but he gives more grace Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw, or excuse me, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What a wonderful picture of God's grace. When we accept it, God gives, you humbly submit, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a beautiful reunion brought about by grace. It's a recapturing of love rekindled by grace. It's a unifying bond that is sealed with grace that sin nor anything else can shake or separate. This is what God's grace does. Another way we misuse God's grace is by neglecting it. Have you ever um, said this to, your, to anybody? I don't know if it's to your child or anything, but have you ever said, don't just look at it? You know, <laughs> I mean, like, what if you've been, like, what if you put a plate of delicious food in front of your child and they're just, like, looking at you? Don't just look at it. Do something with it, right? Or if, if you've been given the ball and basketball and somebody's got the ball, well, don't just look at it. Pass, dribble, do something with it. I think that's what we need to remember with God's grace, too. Uh, God has given you this wonderful gift, wisdom, peace, truth, uh, spiritual giftedness of, of all different kinds. Don't just look at it. Do something with it. It is not something that we should just simply admire. When we neglect God's grace, uh, we do this when we don't apply it to ourselves or to others. Uh, for example, we neglect, to apply, we neglect to apply grace to others when we judge others. Uh, the Bible speaks clearly that we shouldn't do this, and it's the act of an ungracious person. When we hold grudges against others, uh, this is another way why we are, how we are not applying grace to others. Uh, when we focus on their flaws, this is another way that we don't apply God's grace to others. And then also, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but when you bully other people with your thoughts, 
This is another way while you uh, misuse God's grace. And by the way, bullying somebody with your thoughts, I would venture to say, is even more dangerous than bullying them out loud. Maybe. I don't know, but it's bad. And I'll tell you why. Because if you're bullying somebody in your head, if you're thinking harsh thoughts about them and, and judging them and criticizing with your thoughts, well, that's all stored up in you. And you're not saying it out loud and giving the chance for somebody to defend that person. And so all this stuff is just rooting and nesting inside of you. And sure enough, I mean, the longer you keep it in, it's going to come out and sprout out in one way sooner or later. And it's going to produce something that's nasty or rotten. Um, so you need to cleanse that thought. You need to get rid of it. Um, it, it hopefully you'll have somebody to, uh, to help point out your flaws so that you don't have that, that kind of a attitude towards others. We also uh, don't apply God's grace uh, to, uh, we neglect it when we don't apply it to ourselves. Um, guys, I think this is a big problem that a lot of Christians and people just in general have, is that we devalue ourselves. Um, think about it like this way, like, you know, like when somebody gives you a compliment and you're like, oh, you know what, it was no big deal. It, it's not really that big of a deal. I, I mean, don't give me a compliment. Accept a compliment, people. Don't devalue yourselves. Accept that compliment and credit God for giving you that ability and that opportunity and those gifts to do that. Um, a lot of us think that we can never live up to our full potential. We belittle ourselves, and in doing so, we are belittling our Creator, the God who has created us for good and wonderful things. Uh, we neglect to apply God's grace to ourselves when we don't think we're as valuable as other people. I don't know what your perspective is right now on how you're viewing yourself, but what are you using as your quantitative measurement for that? You need to see yourself through God's eyes. Um, and then also when we won't forgive ourselves. Guys, I've already pointed out that we all have sinful pasts. I already pointed out a few of mine, um, but to put it, but we can't dwell on that. I want you to think about this metaphorically. I think about a lot of things metaphorically, but think about your sinful past as this big, you know, you ever seen the cartoons where they have those, you know, rain clouds that just follow that person around everywhere? Well, if that is our sinful past, if, our, if the rain cloud is our sinful past, what would grace be? Pop quiz or cheat answer it's not the umbrella i think what grace would be metaphorically would be the sun that evaporates that rain cloud and takes it away don't neglect god's grace use it in your uh in your uh, forgiving of yourselves we neglect to accept uh, god's grace when we remain in our guilt um you know I, like Peter, have uh, denied Christ. I have, I have wanted to f follow the trend of the world rather than following Christ. I have sinned in anger. I have sinned in secret and in public. And I have a history. However, the enormity of my sin will never outweigh God's grace. My bad is never more than God's good. Don't neglect God's grace. Apply it in your own uh, accepting of God's grace, even though you know you don't deserve it. 
So we need to trust in grace as you confess your sins. Um, The great thing about God's grace is that it's available to you. The great thing about confessing your sins is this. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's talk about sin for just a second. Sin is anything that we say, excuse me, say, do, or think that is not what God wants. God is a righteous God, and he has set the standard for righteousness among his followers. Now, the Old Testament and New Testament words for sin uh, were translated to kind of mean miss the mark, kind of like uh, shooting an arrow at the target and you miss the mark. They would say sin. Um, well, God's, our target is righteousness, and we sin when we miss the, the target. Um, and what does sin do? Well, sin separates, it destroys, it decays, it ultimately leads to death. But you know what sin does. You can see it eating away at relationships. You can see it eating at the way and decaying the joy and the peace that you were meant to have uh, when you're neglecting God's grace and not, not dealing with that sin properly. Uh, a proper way to think about sin is this. Think of sin as a weight. Sin is a burden that will weigh down upon us. And if, it is, it if, if we don't do anything about it, it will crush us. Sin must be dealt with. We deal with it by confessing. God deals with it by forgiving. God dealt with it by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, don't neglect God's grace. Apply it in your own life as you use grace to affect, excuse me, correct your vision of God. God is not some genie that you can just ask for whatever you want and he'll grant your wishes. God is not some angry God in the clouds who is waiting to strike you down with a bolt of lightning. God is not some strict boss who only gives grace to those who work the hardest. God is not an unforgiving father who holds the sinful past uh, against their, his children forever. No, God is a patient, forgiving God who eagerly waits with arms open for his children to come to him and confess their sins and to embrace his grace. I love Psalm 103, 8 through 13. And as I read this, I just want your heart to be uh, filled with a proper understanding of who God really is. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Don't neglect God's grace. Apply it in your own life as you apply grace to your understanding of God's appraisal of you. Um, Like I said before, we are a people who the concept of grace does not come naturally to. We want people to get what we deserve, but I am so thankful that I don't get what I deserve, um, not only from my mom, you know, 20-something years ago, but also from God today. 
The fact that grace is still something that God gives out is wonderful. Um, Did you catch in that reference of Psalm what God does with our confessed sins? It's, It's the greatest news that should give you joy. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. And if you look at Jeremiah 31, 34, I believe, it talks about how God forgets our sins. Use that to correct your vision of God. He's not holding your confessed sins against you anymore. If God forgives our sins, then why are we still holding on to them? Why will we not let ourselves be freed by the grace of God, which he is so desperately trying to get through to us? We accept God's grace when we trust in God's appraisal of us. Based on your belief in his son's sacrifice, God declares you innocent, not guilty, righteous. You have hit the target based upon what Jesus has done. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Why do you think Jesus told this parable? I think he, he told it because he wanted to show us a better image of his father and of the grace of his father. Do you remember his son, uh, the, the son the, the, in the story of the prodigal son, he squandered his father's inheritance, went away, made a wreck of his life. But how did the father respond in that situation? The father, I mean, I think about it this way. Um, the father said, as, as his son was coming back, the father saw him from far off. I just imagine, I'm not going to sit down right here, but I just imagine the, the father of the prodigal son was just sitting on his front porch, just waiting for his son to come back home. And as soon as he saw him from far off, started running to him and embraced him, called the family, the servants together and said, let's throw a party. My son who was lost is now found and he has come back. That's the image that I picture of God trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us your father, my father, the father has his arms waiting for you to come back. Do not be afraid to confess your sins to God. Do not be ashamed of that. Improve your image of God where um, don't think of him as this condemning God who is just waiting to say, I told you so, and now you're going to have to suffer the consequences for this sin. No, he's waiting to forgive and set you free from that. Don't neglect God's grace. Uh, Accept grace as Jesus' love for you. Uh, don't doubt Jesus' love for you. Friend, if, you have, if you're at the point in your life right now where you're doubting, does Jesus really love me? I mean, really? Let me just remind you of a of truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus does not have any regrets for going to the cross for your sin. Yes, it was horrible. Yes, it was painful. Yes, he was in agony over it. I remember Gethsemane. I remember uh, uh, Golgotha. I remember all of this and the price that Jesus suffered. But he does not say, man, I wish I wouldn't have done it for that person. No, he fully embraced what he was doing. And he was thinking about you out of his love during that time. Look at that verse again. I've highlighted the words World and whoever. You are the world. You are whoever. You are the object of God's grace and his affection. 
Uh, just for a helpful thought, I want to also point out this to you as well. If you're in kind of this state as far as where you can't really, uh, don't, you're not really capturing God's love for you. You're not really embracing it. Maybe you don't feel loved. Well, I just want to tell you, uh, Christians, if you uh, have obtained God's grace and you know about it and you've embraced it, just remember this. The same grace that saves you is also the same grace that sustains you. Therefore, just how you needed God's grace for justification to make you right with God, you also need to rely on God's grace for sanctification, uh, to, be, to be made new, to be set apart, to be growing in the faith. So the same grace that saves you is the same grace that sustains you. Hold on to this grace, and just as much as you needed it when you became a Christian, you also need it today in your life 30 or 50 years later. All right. Um, the last uh, way that we misuse God's grace is by abusing God's grace. And I like to think about this as holding tightly to sin and self-righteousness. This is how we abuse God's grace. Um, first, we abuse God's grace when we keep on sinning, even though we know we shouldn't. Um, this is a major warning to you guys if, if you're misusing God's grace. Grace is not to be looked at as a get-out-of-jail-free pass, like in Monopoly. Um, you're not supposed to just like say, well, I know this is really bad for me, but I'll just say a prayer later. I'll confess my sin later, and, and God will forgive me. Guys, that's not true repentance. That's, uh, that's misusing God's grace. Um, you keep getting close to sin. You keep uh, etching out towards the border. You keep dipping your feet in the water, and then pretty soon, before you know it, you're in up over your head in this sin because you're not dealing with it the right way. Uh, now, uh, Paul talks a, a little bit about this, actually talks a lot about this. In Romans 6, chapter 1 through 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, exclamation point. Of course not, he says. Um, this is not what the gospel is. The gospel is not to give us a ticket to freely sin as much as we want to because we have this clause in the in the contract that says, yeah, you can sin, just ask for forgiveness later. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God giving us his grace through Jesus Christ so that we may be free from sin, so that we will not uh, desire the urges to sin and seek to be satisfied in that, which is really a futile way of seeking sat satisfaction as well. Um, Jesus forgave our sins so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, an opportunity to satisfy your uh, flesh, flesh sinful desires. Uh, there is a moral battle going on between all of us. We all feel this internal tug of war by what we should or what we shouldn't do. Uh, Jesus told Peter in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter to temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The apostle Paul talked about this as well. He talked about this with his own life, and this is his, his converted Christian state. This is not his Saul former blasphemous state. Even after Saul had written many epistles to, 
uh, churches and to people and preached in synagogues and been fully convinced of God's grace, he still said this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I, I do not do what I want to, but the very thing I hate. No one is perfect, and no other, no human being other than Jesus Christ has ever lit, uh, lived a sinless life. So, what was Paul's conclusion to this? He says, what am I to do? I want to do it, but I'm doing the opposite thing that I want to do. We can all relate to this. His conclusion was this, Romans 7, 24 and 8, 1. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul was fully convinced that apart from Jesus, he was trapped in his sin. But once he embraced the grace of God through Jesus, he could be uh, freed from that burden of guilt and sorrow. We abuse God's grace when we withhold grace from others. Um, you remember the other son's response in the story of the prodigal son? I think this fits in. And, he's, and this is when uh, the other son, who was the good son, so to speak, he stayed and he was a good worker. And then one of the servants came to tell him and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you, gave, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? The bitter son abused grace. Uh, he wanted justice. He wasn't willing to forgive. Understand the perspectives here between the bitter son and the father. The bitter son was focused on the sinful past of his brother and, and the, the exit of his son from the family. He was focused on his sin. But what was the father focused on? Remember, as he was sitting on the porch just watching, the father was focused on the return we, with, we abuse God's grace when we withhold grace to others. I like to think about it this way. Um, I've told the youth this, this before. Um, if you've been given grace, then you should be given grace. And I kind of put a G-I-V-I-N apostrophe on that. If you've been given grace, then you should be giving grace. Um, it's easy to remember uh, when you say it that way. But it's something to, to know that we should be doing this with each other. Because if we're not doing that, we are abusing God's grace. Jesus warned us about this on the Sermon of the Mount when he said, Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see the speck out of your brother's eye. And then in Romans 2, 3 through 4, Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge and who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's grace, 
His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This is the opposite of abusing God's grace. This is embracing God's grace. When you use God's kindness, his grace, to lead you to repentance, this is a proper understanding. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a welcome-to-abundant-life-free card, so to speak. Um, uh, We use it to motivate us uh, not to sin but to lead to repentance. If we are using God's grace as motivation to sin, then we have totally missed the picture. I also want to point out this. This is a key verse. I love it. It has changed the way I think about uh, uh, my personal motivation to change. Read that last part. Not knowing that the kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness, and this is true for anybody, kindness will motivate somebody to change more than anything else. No uh, legal system, no contract, no chore chart, um, no guilt, uh, none of that. But God's kindness leads you to a repentance. This is one reason why I am in love with God and why I have surrendered my life to God because he loved me first, even though I didn't deserve it. It's that kind of a kindness that motivates me to change and to be uh, uh, more like God. So, don't, use God's, don't abuse God's grace. God's grace empowers you to let go of your sin and your self-righteousness. So we are misusing God's grace when we reject it, neglect it, or abuse it. To better evaluate uh, our sin and God's grace, we need to look to Jesus. Sin separates us from God and Jesus reconnects us to God. When Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, I am sure that he had this picture of God in his mind. This picture, arms wide open, grace saying, come home. And this is also the picture that you should have of yourself towards others. Arms wide open, not judgmental, uh, not unforgiving, but eagerly waiting to embrace others and forgive them. Grace, are you rejecting it? Are you neglecting it? Are you abusing it? Or are you embracing it? A person that embraces God's grace, i got a few examples for you, admits they need it and gratefully accepts it. A person that embraces God's grace is confident in their salvation and eagerly wants to show others the way to God. They are not burdened with guilt, but is released to freely love God and love others without fear. A person that embraces God's grace accepts a compliment and gives the credit to God. A person that embraces God's grace has the best motivation to live up to their full potential. Motivation is key with grace. It's what motivates us. And a person that embraces God's grace sees eternal value in themselves and in others. They also forgive themselves and forgive others. They humbly embrace God's favor. You have, if you embrace God's grace, you have the right tools to, and motivation to overcome sin in your life. Uh, and then also and finally, a person that embraces God's grace does not look to sinful pleasures for fulfillment but rejoices in the daily pleasure of knowing God and enjoying their presence in his life. So friends, enjoy uh, the knowledge 
that Jesus loves you and God has extended his grace to you. Accept grace this week. Um, Apply grace this week and embrace grace this week and be motivated by grace this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your miraculous gift of grace that you have offered to everyone in the world through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray for those who have been rejecting grace for far too long, and I hope that they would see today their desperate need for you and your unconditional love for them. Lord, I also pray for those who are neglecting to apply apply grace in their lives. Lord, just increase their love for you, others, and themselves. And I also pray, Lord, for the person who is abusing your grace. May your kindness motivate them to repentance. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and by his power. Amen.